Hey guys, at the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria, and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community. And I'll do anything to stand up for my gang, and I'll face down, like we had a saying, like one or 100. I'm going to yard. Like, if there's a riot and I know my enemies are out there, I don't care if it's me by myself or if it's a hundred of my homeboys. I'm going to yard. I'm going out there and I will face them. But I won't, I won't stand up when I know that I need to do the right thing and face that same ostracization or face that same level of violence or that pain. I want to avoid that pain. But I'll die for the gang. I'll die for the hood. I'll die for fill in the blank. But I won't die. I won't die for myself. For my, I won't die for myself. I won't stand up for myself for my own freedom or what I want, or what I say I want. Welcome to A Time to Rebuild, the podcast that explores the impact of crime from incarceration to positive transformation and everything in between. Look, all of season one, I did the intros, uh, but I think it's time now that I pass the baton on to Mick. He's been to, he's like, please, 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 Mark, can I do the intros? And I've said no each time, but I feel, uh, I feel this is the right situation now and he's ready to flourish uh, in intros. So Mick, I'm going to pass it over to you, mate. It's about time, Mac. I've been, I've been waiting for this moment. And just, just to clarify, uh, when I ask, you don't answer, you just, keep going you just blank me so i'm gonna go for this one and i'm seeing i'm hoping that we'll get through it and uh, and this could be the the start of something beautiful for this podcast yeah so very excited today to uh, for our guest who we're going to be interviewing someone that i have um come to know over the last year so sometimes in in covid and, and everything that we faced you uh it's been a different year for everything. So sometimes there's a lot of negatives and there's a lot of positives. One of the positives um, for me was I did a little little thing called the Alt-MBA um, and I managed to uh, get through that. But one of the great things I did was I got to meet lots of people through it. And one of them people happened to be our next guest by the name of John Jackson, who um, John works for Hustle 2.0 and he's, a co- he's co-ordered eight books totaling 3,800 pages on prison rehabilitation which are used to tackle gang violence in America's most dangerous prisons. And being entrenched in gang culture for 18 years, John saved in prison. Following the crowd was normal to him. After a wake-up call, John decided to step away from criminal activity and gang life. And today, he works with gangs to stop the generational cycle of gang violence in prison. John uses his stories of loss, failure, and courage to create hope for a better future for those who are considered hopeless and the worst of the worst. John, it is so nice to have you um, as a guest on our podcast. Welcome to the Airs of Australia. Oh, thank you, Mick. Thank you, Mark. Uh, you did a great job of uh, making the intro and making your yes. – uh, you yes. made it happen. Good job. Mark, you, you yeah. handed it over to the right person. Yes, there we go, Mark. Uh, I knew we were in the right place. And I knew I knew it was over with you as well, Mark. I knew you were holding on to this. And I know you I know you're a bit worried about it, but I can tell you, I'll let you have it back. I'll let you have it back. I'm not quite sold on it yet. But, uh, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of room for improvement. Uh, so, so, um, so, John, 
as I say, pleasure to meet you this year. One of the one of the great things, and and we've had uh, conversations a lot back and forth. And I've always been completely intrigued and fascinated from the moment I saw you um, introduce yourself into the Alt MBA and, and what you did, and um, obviously had an affiliation with that, doing the work that we did here in Australia. So, you know, after knowing you and talking to you for many times, you you know, hearing some of your story, and I've only heard a little bit of your story, and I've always found it so fascinating. I've always f- found you so articulate in that and so um, educational in what you've been through and what you're doing at the moment as well. So, so we're really looking forward to today, but I thought we'd probably start by bringing it right back um, to get people to understand, you know, obviously, you know, your upbringing in, in America um, and, and how that led to you to, uh, you know, to basically being in, uh, you know, ending up incarceration and then, the, and then the powerful work that you're doing today. Yeah. So how did, like, let us know how, how did it all begin for a young John Jackson in America? Well, for me, I was born in a large city here in America and uh, called San Antonio. And for you in Australia, I know you guys have, if you're a Patty Mills, I don't know if this is going off base, but if you ever heard of Patty Mills, who's from Australia, he played for the San Antonio Spurs and won a championship. So I am a San Antonio Spurs fan and I am a Patty Mills fan. So there I, there's, my, there's my ties to Australia. Uh, well, I think he listens to the podcast. Patty. So you'll be in there, mate. He listens to the podcast so you can give him a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think the easy thing to do is look and say that I joined a gang, you know, and I've always been there, but there was things that led up to it. There was situations, there were choices that I made as well that led to my incarceration, led to me joining a gang. And it didn't start when I was an adult. I, tracing it back, I say that my joining a gang and became, becoming involved in gang and criminal activity started when I was 11 years old. Um, I was on my way to school one morning and on my walk to school, I discovered my mother's car and it was filled with blood. And they didn't discuss her body was not in the car, but there was enough blood in the car for the cops and for the detectives to determine that she hadn't survived, that she was dead. So at 11 years old, after that, I never knew my father either. I didn't know my father. I had, after that, I went to live with my aunt. I went to live with my mom's sister. And my aunt, my mom's sister, was a drug dealer. And one night, I was with her. She's pulled over. She's pulled over. With, we're, we're pulled over. We're driving one night. She's pulled over. She's got drugs in the car. She has crack cocaine in the car. We get pulled over. She's been to jail before. I'm 17 years old. I've never been arrested. I have, you know, I, I've never been in trouble before with the law. We get pulled over and she's scared. She says, hey, will you, you know, lie and tell the cops that drugs are yours? They'll let you off easy. You've never been arrested before. So I did. I lied. I told the cops that the drugs were mine. And at 17 years old, I was arrested and charged with possession, transportation, and sales of a controlled substance that weren't mine. Um, I did this seeking, looking back now, I know that I was seeking my aunt's acceptance. I lost my mom. I didn't have anybody who accepted me. I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. She had her own kids. And of course, naturally, she loves them as her own kids. I didn't feel that from her. So my way of feeling like I belonged was, you know, accepting and lying and saying that these drugs were mine. Uh, early, I was about two weeks later, my first time in jail, I was released. And before the end of that year, I was all in with criminal activity and gang activity. It's, uh, I had been convicted before the end of that year in 2001, I had been convicted of four aggravated robberies. And 
it wasn't a mistake. I didn't accidentally rob anybody. I made the decision to rob people, but I was doing it out of my, my longing for acceptance. And at 17, I was also on my way to a maximum security prison in California. Wow. So at 17, so tell us a little bit about entering into a gang, because we're going to speak way down the track about exiting a gang. Yeah. But tell us how it works to enter a gang and how was that experience for you and, and possibly for others? So here uh, in the U.S. and specifically here in California, when I got to the count, when I got to the when I got to jail, I had no idea what gangs were, who they were. I, I was just clueless. And I had no idea about the racial segregation that there is in jails and prisons in California and in the United States. So when I got there, I went and sat down at a table of African-Americans or blacks. I went and sat at their table and I had people of my own skin color come over and tell me like, Hey, you, you don't, you can't sit there. Like that's the blacks table. You don't sit there. And me being a young hot headed kid, I'm like, man, screw you. Like I felt like they were trying to punk me from my seat or something. I didn't know that this really was a rule or a part of the mm -hmm. culture there. I was like, man, screw you. Don't, don't, you don't, don't get at me like that. Like you're not going to take my seat. Um, thankfully I had, there was someone there who pulled me over and was like, Hey, look, it's nobody's trying to take your seat. We're just letting you know, these are the rules. This is the way things go in prison. So who do you run with is what he asked me. I'm like, oh, I don't run with anybody. He's like, well, you know, you got heart, you know, you're willing to stand up to, to us and tell us to like, basically screw off. So you're going to be one of us. You're going to be a South sider or Sereno. I was like, okay. Like, all right. And after that, uh, I basically got called what's laced up. They laced me up. Like, this is, this is who we are. This is what we do. And I had to prove myself. I had to prove that, yeah, I, I'd, I'd stood up to them initially and showed that I had heart, but now it's time to, it's now it's time to test it. Are you willing to, are you willing to, you know, engage in acts of violence? Are you willing to, you know, to accept all of our rules? And I was, I, I had been seeking acceptance my entire life. Like, and here's my chance. So you're telling me a whole group of people is going to accept me. Well, hell yeah, I'm in, you know, count me in. Mm -hmm. How quickly did you feel that acceptance from them? That love that you were, that you were seeking? I felt it immediately because it, it, and when I, once I said yes, it was like, Hey, we'll come, let it, let's all meet you. You know, everybody from everybody right there in the section that I was in, who was from the same gang, they're like, Hey, well, let's meet the homie. Let's, this is, we got a new homie. We got a new recruit. Let's meet him. What's your name? Hey, I shake everybody's hand. I get to meet all these. New, I got, I got a whole group of new friends and, you know, they ask me like, Hey, you have deodorant. Do you have toothpaste? Do you have food? And it's like, no, I don't have any of these things. I just got here and I'm given everything that I need to survive in county jail and jail at the time. So I feel accepted immediately. Did you have a fear when you went into like, cause obviously you're engaging in lots of acts of violence and you're looking for that acceptance. And I'm really interested in the mindset of where you were at that, as that young age, like was violence just an, a, a, in a sense, a natural thing in, in that it didn't, you could commit it, but it didn't really have that lasting effect. You didn't have a, a value on it, as I say, you know what I mean? Like you, you were, it was easy to do. Was that, were you in that headspace? Was that, was that something that was, you know, violence was an easy thing for you to commit and you didn't really have that kind of remorse raining afterwards? No, it wasn't an easy thing to commit at first. When I, when I was first arrested, it, I was uh, looking back, I was a scared 17 year old kid. I weighed like 150 pounds and in my head, I'm just telling myself, like, don't show anybody fear. 
you have to be willing to hurt somebody else because like you, you need to be the tough guy on the block. Like you have to be, I can't show anybody that I'm scared. I can't show my weakness because they won't respect me. They won't like me. They won't accept me. And when I look at all them, I'm like, well, they're not scared of anything. So I can't be scared. I have to be willing not just to do, not just to engage in the violence they're willing to engage in. I need to be able to go, I need to be able to tap into something more and go beyond what they're willing to do. I need to be, it's, if it's competitive, I need to be better at violence than them. Wow. And when you went in, when you, um, when you were incarcerated, um, in prison, like what, what was the length of the first kind of, um, uh, stretch that you did in, in, in prison? My first time I was arrested at 17 was two weeks. The second, uh, time I was, uh, the second time I was arrested, it was 18 years. 18 years. Yeah. And was that a combination of multiple, um, crimes or was it one individual I and mean, we don't have to go into that i just it's just an interesting no. thing about what, whether it was one specific or whether it was a combination where you know i know in america that time you have three strikes or you have that as well what what led to that 18 years like so my initial sentence was a for the four aggravated robberies um possession of a firearm unlawful use of a firearm with intent to harm and assault it was 16 years and while I was incarcerated throughout my 18 years of incarceration, I committed more crimes in prison that got, that added on to my original sentence. So I should have been released. And I think it was like, I could, I should have done, if I had been doing the right thing, I would have been released in 12 to 13 years, but I continued to engage in king and criminal activity, which added more time to my sentence. And I'm fascinated, John, as well, boy, um, you just talk about that, 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 that um, wanting to belong, that acceptance. So a couple of things. One, when you got to prison, um, I know you just said that they showed, you know, people showed you love in that sense and you kind of felt belong as well. But like, was that kind of some way a relief to where, and this is a crazy kind of question, was that sometime kind of a, a, a relief in some ways for you, even though you're in prison, that you have people that you now are around? Um, or uh, was that even a question? Like, was that even a, a thought that like, you know, you feel now that you've got something that you belong to and you can attach to and you've got people around you, even though it is in prison. That's the first part of the question. The second part I just want to talk about is what's it like when you hear the, the words you're going to go to prison for 16 years or so forth. Um, so just to, to be accepted and to be, to know that, so there's a difference out here in jail is like before you're sentenced, you're sitting in, it's like this purgatory type place. You're just waiting to go to prison. And I joined the gang while I was in the jail. And then it's like, okay, you go to court, you get sentenced. And I remember when I was going to court while I was still in the county jail, I was already, I was already in, I was already a gang member. And I, I, I've already, you know, I hear the, of my other homeboys and I hear the homies talking about going to prison. It's like, I aspired to get to prison. I didn't just aspire to get to prison. I aspired. I'm like, okay, I'm all in. I'm a homeboy now. I'm all in. With, I'm all in with this. So like, I want to go to prison. I I I tell myself I want to go to prison. Like deep down, I'm a 17 year old kid. I don't want to go to prison. I want to go home. Like I really want to go home. But you know, my desire for that acceptance, my desire for everybody to see that I, I'm I'm one of them is like, nah. I want to go to prison. I don't want to go to prison. I want to go to there's a prison out here in California in the United States called Pelican Bay State Prison. I'm like, that's where I want to go. Because when you're, when, when you get there, you are, you're what the system calls like the worst of the worst. And like, I want that title. 
I know now I didn't want that title, but yeah, to know that no matter where I went, I had a group of people that were going to open their arms and accept me as soon as I got there was a great feeling. It's wow. It's a feeling of security. It's a feeling of safety. It's like, I belong to this, to this clan or this group that it doesn't matter where I go. They're going to accept me. Wow. And were you phased by the way? It's kind of, now you go. Sorry, it's like we're getting used to we're getting used to uh, yeah, doing it online. To... <laughs> you know, so usually we're seeing each other, so we can see each other when we're gonna ask. So go ahead, Matt. Go. Um, in a way, it's kind of like if the same scenario of someone you know, like go to university, study IT, and go, oh, I want to work for Google. You know, yeah, it's the same scenario, but uh, in a different setting. It's a, it's it is very similar, and the set, like I said, the setting is different. There's a, but everything is there. There's a culture there. There's acceptance there. There is perks. There's benefits. There's draw. There's you know. There's there's downsides. It just so happens that in like in gang and this in this setting, there are far more downsides than there are perks. Mm. Did you get to? Uh, you didn't get to Pelican Bay straight away. Did you go um, via? Did you have a detour via somewhere uh, another prison? I did. I started off. I did start off at a maximum security prison, but. Pelican Bay is a super max. It's the only super max we have in California. I started off on a maximum security yard. And it, I think if I think back correctly, it was maybe a month in before I had, I was already engaging in violence as soon as I got there. And when I, it took me a while to get to earn my way to Pelican Bay. Wow. It's fascinating to hear that, isn't it? Like for us, it's so, and, and I know mm. a lot of our listeners will be fascinated by that as well. Like, you know, cause we get a lot of our information, John, I spoke to you about this, through a lot of TV shows here in yeah. Australia, you know, you know, lockdown and all that as well. So, it's, it's, so to have you firsthand kind of break some of this stuff down is, is, uh, is really fascinating for us and it'll be fascinating for the listeners as well. Um, so it, it, it's, it, and what's, what I'm hearing is um, so interesting is, is like, yeah, I need to get to Pelican Bay. That's, that's, the, that's the mecca for me. That's, that's where I need to go, yeah? And, and, and now I've got to go here and this is just like, pit stop and i'm going to do everything i can in here to get myself a promotion to go in there and that promotion is true you know acts of violence and 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 so forth as well yeah it's really what also is really uh when i'm looking back like what's also really interesting about it is just about everybody knows what the consequences are going to be for for doing this like you're going to engage in acts of violence you're going to you're you're gonna you're gonna do things that are compromised maybe the values and the morals that you were brought up with or maybe they fall right in line with the values and morals that i was brought up brought up having and i know it's going to result in me being stuck being placed in a cell you know basically the size of someone's restroom for months and maybe even years but i'm willing to accept that so when i get out of that parking spot or when i get out of that bathroom that i've spent four years in you know when my homeboys look at me they're going to be they're going to know that like i've made it like i i did what i needed to do like i represent my gang the best i can and I'm willing to be pepper sprayed and beat down by cops to earn that. And when you talk about, you know, the bathroom, which you spoke to me before about like size and so forth, like, and you talk about four years, were you four, did you, I'm just trying to work out, were you four years in the shoe? Uh, it wasn't four years consecutive in the shoe. The longest stretch that I did in the shoe is called the segregated housing unit. I did 15 months consecutive in the shoe. Can you explain to our listeners and stuff like that what that involves, what it looks like, and what it involves? Yeah. So, what the shoe here in America, what the shoe is, 
there are, I'm trying to explain this properly, there are eight cells, which are eight feet by 12 feet. I can touch, I can spread my hands and touch all four corners of the wall. And there's no windows. All eight cells face a wall, which is maybe about six feet away from your door. You can't see anything except this concrete wall. There is a door that slides back and forth that a control officer operates um, mechanically. And it has a bunch of little holes all over it. So you don't even have a solid door in front of you. You can hear everything on the tier. Uh, what the tier is, is outside of your cell. You can hear everything outside of your cell that's going on. I can hear my neighbors talking. I can hear him using the restroom. I can hear him running his water. You have no peace in there during the day. Um, but then it's also the opposite. It's also, it can also be this like deathly silence that just like is so freaking heavy. And so, um, yeah, it's just very heavy sometimes. And uh, just thinking back about it now, it's like, it's, it's, it is torture, but torture that I knew that I was signing up for and was willing to accept for some reason. Uh, well, for my, I know my reason was for acceptance. Um, so that's the shoe and you spend the the thought is that the the myth is that you get it's 23 hours a day lockdown it's not it's sometimes 72 hours a day lot 72 hours straight of lockdown and then you get some yard and when i say yard they let you out for what's called recreational yard it's your outdoor recreation your outdoor recreation is another cell that is that has walls that you can't so it, they put they place the walls high enough so the sun can't get in and there's a metal grate above your head so to make sure you don't get any sunlight, but water can sure drip in when it's raining. So that's your recreation. That was our recreational yard. Your shower, every, you, you, you live in these sections. You live in, you live in there, and it becomes your entire world. Nothing even exists outside of there. Anything that you need comes to you. You know, you, if they give you a canteen where you could buy some soups and you could buy some cosmetics and hygiene and some stamps, and that comes to you. You don't go get it nothing you don't leave there for anything and some of the guys that i know did 32 years in that wow where they never left I mean, and they didn't touch they didn't see sunlight they didn't touch grass they didn't feel wind and that that can seem far-fetched like yeah they saw sun, they saw sun one no they didn't see the sunlight one single time in 30 plus years they didn't touch grass for 30 plus years it seems like nah they went out one time no not a single time how do you mentally get through that you i know for me it's it's mentality it's attitude and it's also like a us versus them uh it would because you we would have officers who would come by and tell you like the only way you're getting out of here is when you die and it's like well how do you how do you process that? It's like okay, well, I'm not going to die on your watch. I'm not. It be, it does. It becomes like a competition. It's like you're not going to break me. Their goal is to break you. Those places where the shoe was built to break human beings, and human beings do break. But the ones who, uh, from what I saw myself and other ones who survived, is your attitude. It's your outlook. Is I'm not going to let you break me. And finding positive things to do every single day, like read, educate myself. I made it, we would make chess boards out of toilet paper and paint them on the floor and play chess with one another. We'd put numbers, we'd number the chess boards and call out numbers to, to signify our moves. We'd be like, you know, 
35 to 28 and that's how we would play chess and then somebody else would have next and that would pass our day and we would take apart our our underwear like our boxers we'd take the string out of our underwear and make these ropes and you can i would shoot i would tie like a weight to the end of this string and send it out on the tier or send it outside of my cell and connect with somebody else in another cell and send them a soup or send them some coffee and that's how we stayed connected was through what we call fishing we'd 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 connect like that and send each other things that we needed and that the most connection that you the most and physical contact you got no physical contact the most physical the only time you would get any human contact was when a like a cop came to place handcuffs on you to, to take you out to yard. Wow. And just to clarify, like the, we're not talking any visits, any, any, like no. you get no phone calls. No, no phone calls. No, no, you, no you, would, you don't get, you could have a visit. Uh, it would be one out. Uh, if you're, and if you're at Pelican Bay, it's, this is Pelican Bay is in the fur, the farthest most corner of the state. And it's there for a reason. Like they don't, they don't want you getting visits. It's the nearest cities, my one. The nearest, like most of the families who come up there, they have to either fly or drive 16, 18 hours to get there for a one hour behind the glass visit. Wow. So talk us through then. Um, you, you, you know, you've moved from, you moved into, let's go to Pelican Bay now. So you, you're in Pelican Bay and, and, you know, that's, well, after what period of time was that? Was that four years? Oh, no, no, no. It took me far longer than that. I, 2000 and i got to prison in 2001 i got to pelican bay in 2013. right okay so a fair distance so you arrive in pelican bay you finally you know got to your destination um what was what was that like then moving into that prison that was was you would have the connections already you were straight in and just life just started there like you know pretty much you just smoothly went into into who the people you were working with your homies and 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 uh, your, your gang in there is that how is that how it went well yes yeah, soon as I, it's it it surprised me how it was really no different than any other prison you have these huge expectations of oh like i don't know what uh what out there holds like this aura of like so mysterious and scary and like you think about it and you're like oh crap i don't know what to expect and i got it when i and when i got there it was really, except for the level of violence, it really was no different than any other prison. It was just another prison. The cops there were, I don't want to speak bad about too many cops, but the cops there, there um, there's good cops everywhere you go and then there's a not certain so culture. Yeah, there's good cops, then there's not so good and there's a culture that can be built. So the cops were very different there. Um, there's a very different culture there than many other prisons. And it also comes, the, the, I would say, if there's anything different about Pelican Bay to me when I got there was the expectation that you, you, got, you, you earned your way here. You made it here for a reason and you're here for a reason. And, well, I have, a, I have a reputation to uphold and I have a reputation to keep or to meet of that I'm this violent person. So that expectation was, was the thing that was different. In this time, do you think about rehabilitation? Is it even in your yeah. top process? Not, not at no, all. No, I, I, I was. I'm like when I got there, I'm a few years away from getting home, and from going home, and I'm just like, how do I get out? And how do I get drugs back into the prison? How do I? That was my main thing. I was like, how do I? When I get out, how do I make? How do I make money? How do I make money legally? Like I'm not even, rehabilitation is the furthest thing from my mind. I almost, I, 
if I made it, my thing was if I, even if I if I made it home, if I was released, it's like anything could happen. Any single, any, I could wake up one morning and a riot will happen, and I'm jumping in for sure, and I'm not going home. So I, that was my expectation: is if something doesn't happen, then I'll get to go. Then I will, I'll get to go home. But you know what? I'm in prison until I'm not in prison, and if whatever happens happens, and so I'm not free until I'm out. I'm out the gates. It's so uh, it's so interesting that you that view you know like that you just yeah and, and and what you say there about you know if a riot happens you're in so it seems to me that you amongst a lot of other men that are incarcerated in pelican bay or any other you know prison in the u.s and would go through that on a daily basis and and if it's go time it's go time i suppose and 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 you're in and then whatever comes out of that can come out of that so you could be close to release you could be you know further from release whatever but you will engage in an action there that you won't think twice about you will go and you will do um, and that moment could then turn around to be a life uh, sentence. A life sentence it could be a life sentence i've seen while i was at pelican bay there was a riot with the cops where multiple cops were injured uh and the incarcerated people were shot in the face shot in the arm they have live ammunition there and you had guys who were going home in weeks and they they're not going home now it's really tough because you if you make the decision to do it you make the decision to engage in that violence and that's the result and you're willing to accept that i was more than willing to accept that if that happened i i wasn't out there i was in my i was you know i was in my i was in my building and had i been out there i it's sad to say that i probably would have and i was maybe two or three years from going home, I would have, I would have involved myself. When that happens in that moment, and, and, for, and I know, you know, you said you engage in this or, or if other people you know, and they're like, say, for instance, four weeks away, yeah, and they engage in a right, and then suddenly they get that life sentence. Is there an element of, this is how my front is in front of my, you know, homies and everyone else, but is there a, a part when you're on your own, that they're on their own, that they have this, big resentment of the life that they're leading and what that moment has done for them because now they're facing a whole lifetime in prison. Does that even exist or have you ever seen that or felt that or so forth? But like, so when you're on in your own moment, when you're with yourself, behind it all, is the mind allowed to go to that place where you can go, man, I'm, this, is, this is wrong, I'm sick of this. Like, look, at, look what this has made me do now and look where my life for me is gone, my family and everything else. Like, is that existing? Or is it still like, nah, I've done what I've done and I, I, I'll pay the consequences and I move on now and I'm just going to do my time? Well, I, I think many people would lie to themselves and say that, that, that nah, I'm cool. This is, it is what it is. Um, I guess the saying is like, you know, you know what you signed up for. And yeah, it's true. You, but does a, does a 13, the average age of somebody who joins a gang is 12 or 13 years old. Do you know what you're signing up for when you're 12 or 13 years old? You don't, you don't know that. When I was 17, I did not know that the age of 35, 36 years old, 35 years old, I'd still be in, I would still be in prison. Um, the, there, there was the wall that goes up that tells my, that I would tell myself like in front of the homies and even with myself to avoid feeling the pain of being incarcerated, to avoid feeling that pain of like, you know, it is what it is. What I signed up for, it's part of the lifestyle. Like, and if you can't handle it, then you shouldn't have signed up for it. You're weak. But then, I don't know if we're getting too soon, but when I decided to change my life, that, those were the thoughts that I, 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 
those were my thoughts was like i was one day i was supposed to go home the next day it was a day before my 33rd birthday i'm supposed to be going home the next day and i'm starting another four-year sentence and i I was like, I, this is what, this is my life. Like, I don't want to die in here. I don't want to die a freaking gang member. I don't want to die. And nobody will remember me. They're not going to know. My homeboys won't care when I die in prison. You know, nobody's going to give a crap that I died in prison, that I died in a cell alone. Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to give my life for this. I can, I can be better than this. I have, I have skill, my skills, my leadership skills, all, all that I have to offer the world are going to die with me. I don't want to do this anymore. And, and I then, think many guys have those. Many guys have those thoughts, but it, it's it's you can look at it as weakness, but it takes a lot more strength to stand up to an entire culture and say, "I don't want to do this anymore," than to just keep giving in and say, "Well, I guess this is what I signed up for, so I'll take it." When you started having those those feelings, were you able to vocalize it to anybody, or is that something that? You had to yeah, keep internal, I guess. I was by myself the first time when I sat in my cell alone uh, before my birthday that day, before I was supposed to go home. And that was the first that was the first time that I really wanted to go home since my incarceration. I'd wanted to go home before that, but I'd never been willing to do anything about it. I'd always been like, I want to go home. Like, yeah, everybody wants to get out of prison. I don't know anybody who wants to stay in prison. Like, but what I, I wasn't willing to do anything about it. I didn't vocalize it to anybody because I still felt, I still felt like I still enforced the rules of my gang. I still believed that, you know, this is, I'm, I'm part of something that has meaning, value, and purpose. Like being a gang member is my identity. I identified as a gang member. So to, to vocalize and say like, that's not me. Um, that seemed like blasphemy. And, you know, I would any I would have said at the time if anybody would have came and told me like they don't want to be part of this anymore you don't want to do this anymore like you, know, you deserve to die and that really that usually is the punishment is like you're we're going to try to kill you yeah it's fascinating what you're saying at the moment about you know that change and that moment of change which is such an important thing for even the work that we do here in Australia like this it's always talking about you know people that are willing to change and and we work with people that sometimes you know you just say they're not they're not ready to change. Yeah. And when they're ready to change, then we can make the impact. But at the moment, they're not ready to change. They're, they're happy doing what they're doing and they're, you know, their life is leading that way. And we can try and do that, but it's probably not going to end up with a very successful outcome. Nick, like many businesses out there, we're heading back into the office. Yes, we are, Mac. Means no more tracksuit pants, mate. And for you, actually wearing trousers. <laughs> <laughs> But that's not the issue here, Mac. It's not. The issue is I've been looking around a lot of businesses in the city lately. I've been in there. Were you allowed to be? Well, yes, I was invited in, Mac. (laughs) But one of the things that strikes me is sanitizing bottles everywhere, on the edge of the tables and so forth, receptions and so forth. And it's a need. We all need it. But it doesn't look good. Looks horrible. Doesn't look, doesn't have any style. So you know what we're going to do about it? What are we going to do? We are already doing it. We are making sanitizing stations made from handcrafted wood in our prisons by our young people. They are stylish and they hit the need of every business. You can get them tailor-made. You can get the wood that you have on your reception or in your offices. We can use that to actually make them. And every time you use these things, you're going to sanitize in style. I'm loving it. Who thought of that name? Well, Mac, I'm pretty humble, so it was me. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> so you have style. Okay. Yeah. But this is the thing. If we get businesses to buy these things and fit out their whole offices, we will create multiple jobs. It's that simple and it's needed. So if you're a business out there, go to www.ymcarebuild.org.au and sanitize and style. Um, I'm really interested in what a day when in a day is for you, John, what a day was like in prison, a typical day. Now, this is when we're in, you know, Pelican Bay, you know, I'm sure you had a, 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 a job. Were you a porter or were you something? Was that what the role you had? It'd be interesting to hear what you did and what a day looked like for you and all that was involved in that good and bad. Uh, so uh, a typical day for me well, at Pelican Bay, I was a porter. I was a trustee. I, because I have good communication skills and because I'm, you know, I'm diplomatic. I have a pretty cool level head at times. Like my job was to sometimes be the go between between the my incarcerated brothers and the cops. And I'd wake up early in the morning. I'd usually get up about four o'clock in the morning. You know, clean my cell. This was a daily routine. Very you know, one thing we learn in prison is uh, good hygiene. Um, I'd scrub my cell down every day with a towel. Uh, my celly and I would take turns doing that. One day it's my turn. One day it's his turn. Um, then I would go out and I'd set up all the food for breakfast, pass out the lunches. That was my job. And I clean, uh, I get to clean. But in between that, it's passing messages. It's handling gang activity every day without going into too much detail. It's going into gang activity, you know, passing kites, what we call kites, making sure, making sure all my homeboys are following the rules as well. I'm on the tier. I'm basically the, a glorified super uh, babysitter um, of a bunch of grown men who I need to make, like, I need to follow the rules too, but I need to make sure that they're following the rules because it's not only my homeboys there, it's there's four or five other gangs there and it's just so much politics. There's so many, like you have to walk a really fine line. I have to make sure my homeboy didn't disrespect another race because if he did, oh crap, we have a riot on our hands. If you know, my homeboy signed up for a phone call and it wasn't his spot, then guess what? You know, the other race has a problem. The other gang has a problem with that. Now I have to go make sure I have to go deal with that and appease them and make sure that everything works out fine and nobody gets killed. Nobody, a riot doesn't happen or my homeboy doesn't come out drunk on the tier and acting like an, act like an idiot. This is, that's, yeah, a glorified babysitter was basically my day. And then I go in at the end of the day and go to sleep. <laughs> A tiring day, keeping yeah. the peace in Pelican Bay. Not <laughs> <laughs> yeah. your average day of work. Huh? I can and here we are, Mark, thinking we have to de deal with some issues. Young people, I can only imagine trying to keep a prison in line, John. So uh, I think that would be a really good thing. Do you ever do you put that on your resume? That's a pretty good skill set. <laughs> but luckily, it was only for one building. I didn't have to do the. I didn't have to do that for the entire yard. Somebody else got to deal with that headache. I I just got to deal with two hundred people on that. Just a just a just a just a small two hundred people. Just keep them yeah, in mind, just, John. Just yeah? two hundred people who are who yeah. are hard headed knuckleheads and don't want to listen to anybody. <laughs> um, really interested <laughs> in this as well because you talk about you know the race and obviously you know affiliation and so forth that you have, and obviously with your job, then you would be communicating with all different um, cultures and race and so forth. Are you able to form any kind of relationship with other races? Um, or is that a really kind of secretly kind of thing? Or is it just a mutual respect that you might have with someone that you know? And it's not many words, but it's a respect. But did you over time have any kind of, um, you know, friendships or relationships or with uh, other races? I did. It's really, there is a mutual respect there with 
just with all different races and different gangs, but some of them are some of my best friends. Yeah. Um, one of them was just released on Monday. Uh, he's an African-American male. He did about 15 years. And he he was at Pelican Bay with me on B-Yard, and he was released on Monday. And made me so proud to see his transformation and his change and that we come from, you know, once enemies. And I got to see his face and cry whenever he walked out of Pelican Bay. You know, I'd say, wow. I, so, yeah, I formed great bonds and great friendships with, different races and different cultures but there's also on the other side of that while incarcerated there's this you can be my friend and i can help you out we can help one another but there's the unspoken rule of you know if shit if, if stuff hits the fan you know you're you're just another black guy that i need to kill or i need to attack or you're just another white guy or you're just another whatever we can be cool now but you know, at the end of the day, and then you justify the violence, you justify the hate or the racism by saying, we're just doing business, you know, it's all, it's just business. It's nothing personal. I got nothing against you as a person. It's just part of the game. It's just business. Don't take it personal. So this person who you have built this relationship that's been released and, and here you've got this, you know, obviously you can see you got a great deal of, you know, care and love for us, I suppose, um, if it was go time between the two years, it would have to happen in prison. We say a lot of times it has to happen, but I never had to do anything. Yeah. I chose to do that. Mm. Like anytime that I engaged in violence, anytime I could tell I have to do it, I don't have to do anything. I, we, a lot of times, uh, incarcerated or gang members or whoever we are, we pride ourselves on my own man. I'm my own person. Nobody tells me what to do. Well, and the next words out of your mouth are, well, I had to do it. You had to do it? I thought you were this big, bad, tough guy who nobody tells you what you have to do, but you had to do it. Mm. It's that fear. I, I, I would do it because I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want to be the odd person out. I don't want to be the one who didn't jump in a riot. You know, I want to be the one who, after everybody else proned out, every, after everybody else got pepper sprayed and laid down, I want to be the one who stood back up when everybody else was down and gets sprayed again, because I want to be seen, I want to be feared. And I would, I would, um, I would imagine your life in, in, in prison, you want to live a life that's, you know, as good as it can be for you. And I would imagine that your choice, if you made that choice not to, to, to do something, um, could lead to, uh, you know, your time in that prison being quite uncomfortable for periods of time. And, and I imagine, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you could lose respect, you could lose, you know, um, you lose friendship and all that, and, and, and your life. And, and, and it would uh, it would be a turning point for you where, yeah, you, you choose not to, but that choice not to is going to be a choice that's going to change in a different way for you as well. It's going to lead to a different um, end result for you as well. So it's yes. just, it's like you have, you got two choices and, and both aren't great. You know, no. in some way, and they're both going to lead to 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 harm and hurt physically and mentally. Well, what you say, what you said right now, is really interesting because uh, in in gangs and whatever it is, I'm willing to give up my life for this gang. I'm willing to give up my freedom, my family. I'm willing to give up all of these things for that. I'm willing to die for it. But then, when I know I want to be free, when I know I want to go home. I'm not willing to take any kind of pain or punishment for it. That it doesn't, uh, it, it, it's so like, what is it called? A paradox. 
Mm. I'm willing to die for it on this hand, on one hand, and I'll do anything to stand up for my gang. And I'll face down, like we had the saying, like one or 100, I'm going to yard. Like if there's a riot and I know my enemies are out there, I don't care if it's me by myself or if it's 100 of my homeboys, I'm going to yard. I'm going out there and I will face them. But I won't. I won't stand up when I know that I need to do the right thing and face that same ostracization or face that same level of violence or that pain. I want to avoid that pain, but I'll die for the gang. I'll die for the hood. I'll die for fill in the blank, mm -hmm. but I won't die. I won't die for myself for my, I won't die for myself. I won't stand up for myself for my own freedom or what I want or what I say I want. Hmm. So, if we move it to this point where we go back to where you, you know, sitting in your cell, you're just turning, I think for an Irish man to say would be pretty good. 23? Is that your age? Was it? When you were I, was, I was 32. Ah, there you go. 32. So, you know, and you just received another sentence and another four years. Is that correct? I had received it a few years prior. I was starting the sentence. Starting the next the day sentence. was the start of the sentence, yeah. And you've made this decision and you've said, right, I don't want to die in prison. Got to do something yeah. about this. So I've spoken to you before. So a lot of people's perception of gangs, you know, across the world, um, and certainly here in Australia, and, and certainly myself, and, and I've always, you know, over years, you kind of, you learn to believe that there's one way in and there's one way out. Yeah? And... You know, you enter very easily and painfully, I would imagine it's harder like as you get out. And most people think that's in a body bag or most people think that's, that's, how it, that's how you leave a gang. Now, that's not always the case. And that is, you know, where you made a decision and where you do, your work that you do now continues to help people with this decision and with their actions to do this as well. And this is, for me... Some of the most powerful work that I, you know, I've read and I've seen, and 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 I've got so much admiration for what you're doing and, and what you did for yourself, but also as well. And I think it's going to be it'd be fascinating for us to kind of break this down on on how you started this process of being an entrenched gang member from the outside to the inside, all the way through your prison step, and then suddenly you go, you know what? I need to get out of this. I need to make some decisions for myself and I don't want to die in prison and I'm going to now start this process of leaving a gang. How does that start? It's a long process. It's not a, it could be deceiving to think I just woke up and said, I'm out. I'm good guys. Like count me out. Like I'm good. No, that it doesn't work that way. But the process for me was like realizing I don't want to die in here. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I didn't go straight to yard and tell the homies like, Hey, fool, count me out. Like, I'm good guys. Like, you know, you, you need something to get it somebody else. But it was, uh, okay. Like I need to start separating myself. I need to start making choices for myself. I need to start separating myself from people who are, what I used to say is like, these fools are always with the drama. I don't, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to be, I don't need to be around them. If they're just want to gossip and, you know, be engaging violence and drugs and all this crap, like I don't need to be around you. And I'm willing to fight with anybody else. So guess what? I'm willing to fight with you to get to get the hell away from me. Like, hey, fool, I don't, you know what? Uh, as a, I was a porter, I gave up my job. I gave up my porter job because I know that, okay, if I'm going to keep this job, I have certain responsibilities that are going to, and I'm giving up a really good job. I get extra food. I'm out of my cell all day. You know, I get, I have access to do all kind of, I have access to everything. I'm like, well, 
I looked at it, I was like, okay, if I want, if I want to separate myself from criminal activity, if I want to stop doing all this stuff, that's what I, if that's what I say I really want, then I need to give up this job. And I did. That was one of the most difficult things I had to do because I used to also run all the gambling pools while I, while I was at Pelican Bay. And I'm giving up my, I'm giving up my income. I'm giving up all my money. I'm like, I don't, like, I don't depend on my family for anything. Like, I make really good money in here, you know, running gambling pools. I run, I, I clean the poker table up every week. But I also know that if I'm engaging, if I'm gambling and if I'm running gambling pools, I'm hanging around, I'm, I'm engaging in gang and criminal activity. So I gave that up. I gave up my job. And I started to separate myself from people who I knew were just, they didn't want to do anything positive. All they wanted to do was spend the rest of their life in prison. And guess what? I don't want to do that. You're not going my direction. Like, I'm good. I'm going to separate from you one at a time. And people start, my homeboys around me started to see that. And not to me, they didn't test me. And I compromised lots of times along the way where, hey, my name was Tex. They called me, they called me Tex. Like, hey, Tex, I need you to take these, I need you to do this. I'm like, I, I know in my head, I'm like, I don't want to do this. If I do this, I'm I'm backtracking. I'm stepping back on what I say I want, and I did it, and it was a compromise. But it was each one, each 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 time I failed at that, I also had successes where I would separate myself from someone, or when I did say no, that person wouldn't ask me again. Or I had people. I remember one specific time, somebody was asking me to take something out. Somebody was taking asking me to take something outside. I'm like, I'm not doing that shit. He's like, What are you scared? I'm like, Well, take it your damn self. You're about to go out on your own. You do it. Yo, are you scared? I shut him up real quick. <laughs> like you do it yourself. Like you're this big bad freaking guy. Like I'm telling you, I ain't doing it. You do it. Do it yourself. And that kind of get when I see those little successes help me to continue to say no, to continue to stand and like I want to go home. And it it got easier as it went along. The further I got, the more I distanced myself from people. Like they don't want to hang around me. I'm a freaking I'm a wet blanket to them. They give you the space to do this, like, you know, because this is the, the, the really interesting part, you know. Does it come down to the level of respect that you had built up um, for, you know, and I mean this, in the, you know, the, the word is there, like that resume that you have, a speak of a prison yeah. resume, but it's also, you, you know, your gang resume that you've had, you know, a lot of on there. If you read through it, you go, oh, yeah, this, this guy's, you know, he's done, he's, done, he's done what he's needed to do and he's respected. Well, did that, was that one of the, reasons a big reason why you were able to make this decision and start to put these things in place for your you know slow kind of you know exit i believe that it was it was a huge part in like you know you've been down 15 16 years like you've put in your what you know you've earned your keep and like if you want to now it's like basically you've you've gone through the cycle you've done it all you've not done it all but you've done a lot of it so like now go ahead and kick back, relax and go on home. That's that if that's what you really want. That's what you say you want, then go for it. And the older the older the older guys are older homeboys who had been doing this far longer than I have, when they see that, they say the same thing. It's like, yeah, if you don't you know what, you don't want to keep doing this, okay, we don't then go your own way. But also know that there's no coming back. That's what you say you want. Yeah, so you kind of said, yeah, you, you many, made your decision, many, you're going to live with it. Yeah, and for many older, for many guys who, I'm calling myself old, <laughs> for many guys who, you know, have <laughs> been in prison for a while, who have, they've been through it, they've experienced it, it's like, 
you know what, or, or you want to still be that 17-year-old, 18, 19-year-old kid who keeps banging their head against the wall, um, believing in the stories of 30, 40 years ago, what you thought prison was and what you thought gangbanging was. Do you want to keep leaning into that or do you want to go home? Do you want to change your life? Do you want to have a visit from your family? Do you want to hug your daughter? Well, you know, go for it. But you don't get to, you don't get, you don't, I guess like you don't get the benefits of the gang anymore. You're not going to get the benefits of it. You know, you don't get to, you don't get to play both sides. You don't get to play both sides of the fence here. Did you know what you wanted to be released for? Like did you know? Was... Sorry, Mac. You you can go. No, you start. You go. You go. I was going to say, did you know what you were aiming okay, to be released sorry. for? I just... <laughs> <laughs> you said go and then you went again. Did you want to go, Mac? I'm going to step like, back. There's like one second delay. There is, yeah. yeah. I'll, pick, yeah. I'll pick. Mark, you're up. You go, Mac. I've been talking too much. Oh. Thank you, John. Um, did you? I'm joking. So it sounds like... <laughs> Up until the point we're talking about, it sounds like that you're doing this all by yourself. Looking at where you are now, you're working in this massive team and I'm sure a lot of people along the way have helped you. Um, when was that first interaction with someone else that, you're, that you started to work with to start put, putting you on this direction that you were going in? I would say it was a, um, as opposed to an individual person, it was a, it was a program that when I got to Pelican Bay, we didn't have any programs. There was no rehabilitator programs offered to us, but it was really, it really like lined up for me that when I decided I wanted to start making change that a program came available, an entrepreneurship program. And I took full advantage of it. It came like, well, this is exactly what I want. I'm a freak. I'm a natural born hustler. I'm an entrepreneur. I got, I have these leadership skills and they had, they, this program brought mentors, um, some pretty, like they would bring CEOs and executives from very well-known companies to come in and mentor us and teach us. And when somebody told somebody being told that I had value, being told like, wow, you have a story to tell or, and people believing in me and telling me that I had value and worth, I started to believe it. Like the more you tell me that, the more I believe it. I guess like if you continue to tell me and that I'm a piece of crap and I have no value and I have no worth, then I'll identify as that. But, when you start to brainwash me and tell me that I have value and I have worth, um, I start to believe it. So it started to give me more confidence that I, you know, I probably do have, maybe I do have something to offer this world as opposed to just pain and destruction that I introduced through my gang and criminal activity. Cool. I had a celly at the time who kind of got on that path with me. And what really, what inspired me about him is he has life without parole. He will never go home. Never. He, he was sentenced, he was given basically a, the extended death sentence at the age of 17 came to prison and for him to want to like kind of change with me and do this, do programs with me was like, I was like, why? Well, you're never going to go home. Why, why you? Like, but it inspired me to keep going because knowing he will, he literally will die in prison. Wow. So, so John, talk us through your lead up to being released. So when you found out that you were going to be released, how that happened as well? Like, is it, you know, parole is it like a straight release as we would say is it you know how how did that all come about when you got the news the process the news uh, and then we want to go into what that was like to actually after 18 years walk out the door of, of pelican or of prison and pelican bay in, in that prison at the last prison you're in and then into the community so for me i had a straight release date i knew 
what day I was getting out. I was getting out on June 13th, 2019. That was my release date. I'd known it for a good long while. Um, but what I had been hiding from the people, from my mentors and from my support group um, was that there was a typo in my transcripts. I had been taken back to court and I was given another four-year sentence. But this one wasn't to come after. I'd been given, no, I'm sorry. I had been given a 13-year prison sentence to run concurrent and I was given time served. There was a typo. Whoever was typing behind that computer forgot to type the one letter that said, uh, like a check a box, it said time served. So when June 13th came around, uh, a U.S. Marshal came and picked me up and flew me to the state of Texas, back to where I was born. And it took, I didn't get, I actually wasn't released until June of 2019 as I spent more than a week in shackles, cuffed up. Uh, I lost about 10 pounds over that time period. I was never placed in a cell. Um, so instead of being released on my release date, I'd done everything I was supposed to do. I hadn't, I hadn't committed another crime. Um, and because, because of somebody's mistake, I was facing and I was facing more time in prison. So a U.S. Marshal picked me up, flew me to Texas, stuck me in the county jail, and all I needed was one person. I needed mo well any one people, any one person of authority at the prison at Pelican Bay could have said, "Yeah, this is John Jackson, and he spent the last 18 years of his life in prison," and it would have gone away. They wouldn't do that. I was actually told the night before. I was like, look, if you will just send this message to Texas, they won't pick me up tomorrow. And they said, get out of my office. We're not going to help you. We've done all we can for you. We don't, basically, we don't care. So I went back to my cell and I waited the next day. They came and picked me up. And all throughout this process, I had attorney. I, I Luckily, I had the mentors that I told you who came to prison. While I, or the mentors who came to prison um, they helped me get an attorney and this attorney fought for me and said, look, he, you guys made a mistake. He served his time. He's been in prison for 18 years. We don't have any proof of that. And the sheriff, the, the local jail said, no, we're not letting him go. The prison system in Texas said, no, we're not letting him go. Um, finally, the lawyer got the documentation that they needed to prove that I had been in prison for 18 years and that they had agreed to this with that me and the courts had made this agreement that I would serve my prison time and they released me. But I, I had just been so trained that the system was going to screw me over and they were proving it that they were by keeping me incarcerated past my date. Like when they called me and said, Hey, you're, you're going home. I didn't believe it. I was like, I, I, I was so nervous and so scared. I'm just like, I'm just waiting for a cop to grab me and say, Hey Jackson, go back to your cell. We made a mistake again. Like you're not going anywhere. It took about 24 hours for them to process my release. So I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in this release tank, just waiting, waiting, waiting for 24 hours. I waited, 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 waited. I'm like, yeah, checks out. I'm not going home. They called me out, Jackson, you know, you're going, when they called my name, I'm like, yep, they're about to tell me, go back to my cell. I'm not going home. You know, I'm going to die in prison. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And because of a mistake, I'm going to die in prison. I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. And when they called me out, they're like, give us your social security number. Read it backwards. I'm like, I don't know my freaking social security number backwards. What address did you live at when you were 12? I'm like, I don't know. I don't, 
I just want to go home. Like, I, I don't know any of these things. I'm, I'm, I haven't slept in freaking days. I lost 10 pounds. I just want to go home. And so I give him my social security number. I, I give him like four or five different addresses of where I live. And one of them is right. And then I go stand in front of this window, uh, the sliding glass door and it doesn't open. I'm just like, yeah, it checks out. Like every moment, every step to it, I, I did not believe that I was going to be free or that they were going to release me. I, I thought I was going to die in prison. I was, I was like, I was sure of it. Then like the door opened and like, that was my, um, my mentor was standing on the other side and I was like, I was in shock. I'd never, I just wanted to get the hell out of there. I ran, I like grabbed him and I ran and I'm like, I want to get out of here. Like I'm just waiting. They're going to come grab me and they're going to take me back. I know it. Like I'm, I was, it felt weird. I was in shock. And even like thinking about it right now makes me emotional because I was like, I, I, I hadn't been free in 18 years. I hadn't walked on my own in 18 years. I hadn't worn my own clothes in 18 years. I hadn't like touched another person who wasn't incarcerated or a cop putting handcuffs on me in 18 years since I was freaking 17 years old. And like I hadn't ridden in a car. I hadn't done any of those things. So that was the first time that I, I walked out into like a lobby and I just like, I want to get the hell out of here before they grab me and take me back. I don't let them take me back. I didn't sleep for I think three or four days after that until I finally like passed out of exhaustion on a friend's couch. And I was in Texas. I got released from a different state. I had 48 hours to get back to the state. They didn't care how I got back, but I had 48 hours to get back to my state and report to my parole officer. And it didn't matter that I was a thousand miles away. So that was my, that was my reintroduction back to society. Welcome back, huh? <laughs> yeah, welcome back. Get back here in 48 hours and we'll send you back to prison. They sent you on like a prison episode of The Amazing Race, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. It's, it's, it's such, it, you've told me before, but it's such a powerful story. I know it made you emotional and, and I, like I know, you know, it, it bringing it back. So I appreciate you sharing with us again. And it just couldn't imagine what was going through your head. But I, like it's, yeah. It's, it's amazing that you did get through that and you had people there that could have helped you because I could only imagine if you didn't have that mentor or them people there yeah. to be able to go out for you. And I'm sure there's lots of people if that had happened, they would have not had that and would have been facing a different, um, you know, prospect of what goes on. So, you know, what a terrible experience and, and obviously grateful that there was people there that could actually get behind you and, and actually see that you needed some support and got that support to you as well. I take it you made it back into 48 hours? I did. I made it back, reported to my parole officer, and I I believe I've been a great uh, parolee my entire time. I don't give him any problems. I ski, I write, and now I do podcasts. Yes, you do it all. You do it all. Um, how was life adjusting to the, just like, just interested, how was life adjusting to the, um, you know, being in the community after like, as you say, 18 years, like so much, had, had so much changed or did you just kind of, you know, were just embracing it or was it, was it difficult? It was difficult, but I had a great support group of people who surrounded me. And I, for anybody who gets released after any amount of time, having a great support group is, is key. And if you don't have one, find one. Um, and if you say you can't, use your resourcefulness. Many of our incarcerated guys are hella, you're super resourceful. So get resourceful uh, about finding a support group. But for me, when I got out, I did have a hard time transitioning. I 
you, I didn't realize that I had spent 18 years in a war zone and a constant heightened sense of awareness, trying to be aware of everything that was around me. Like on, on a prison yard, a riot can kick off at any time. Like I'm in a grocery store thinking a riot is going to kick off. Like a riot's not going to kick off at the freaking local supermarket, but my brain can't comprehend that. My brain did not comprehend that the person just looking at me because I'm six foot four you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty tall dude. Like, so people look at me sometimes and like in prison, you don't just stare at somebody. So to me, it's like, what the hell are you looking at? And like, that's not, a, that's not a response. That's not a, a response that I should be given. But because I was so hyper aware and I was so like, I viewed everything as a threat and I, it took me time to work through that to see that like, this person's not a threat to me. They're just wondering that who is this six foot four dude walking around, you know, looking this, who, who is this guy? People look at people out here. It's just what they do. And like, I had to get used to that. I had to get used to people, COVID people respect space now with COVID. But, uh, when I first got out two years ago, people did not respect space. Uh, there was no six foot bubble around me. Now there's a six foot bubble around everybody. So it's a little bit better for me. It's a lot easier. Everybody stays the hell away. Everybody stays away from me. Uh, before that, People bump into you. People are staring down at their phones, not paying attention to what's going on. And that took some adjustment. I thought that everybody knew I was fresh out of prison. I thought I had prisoners stamped on my forehead. Nobody knew. But I thought I felt, I felt insecure. I felt that everybody knew that I was just out of prison, that I was a convict, that I was a felon. I thought it was stamped on my forehead and that people were judging me every second of the day. Hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with John. Part two is now available, where we discuss John's massive impact on helping other gang members leave that life behind. If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. A way of helping us is to subscribe, share with friends and leave a review. If you want to take that next step, hit up our online store where you can purchase handcrafted wooden products. If you're sitting there going, I want to do everything I can, get a quote for facility maintenance needs at your business. We're on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, www.ymcarebuild.org.au. This podcast was produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing done by Mark Wilson.